You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us. This week's episode is another first for us. It is a very special episode, a little bit tough to listen to and a lot emotional, but it is a story that certainly needs to be told. Before we get to the episode, I want to remind you, check out our website, hazardground.com. It's up and running. More information about guests, pictures, bios, things of that nature. Get on iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Doesn't have to be a long rating, but we certainly appreciate the feedback. Don't forget to check us out on all the social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're everywhere. Hazard Ground, Hazard Ground Podcast. Look us up, follow us, and let us know what you think of the show. We certainly love to hear from you. This week's episode is brought to you by our new sponsor, Patagonia Clothing and Outdoor Gear. You've probably seen the ubiquitous mountain landscape Patagonia logo on a jacket or a pair of shorts or the occasional mesh hat or knit beanie. But the story behind those products runs much deeper than just a logo. Patagonia was founded out of a love for adventure and the outdoors. Their incredibly well-built products and impeccable customer service keeps you moving from adventure to adventure without skipping a beat. And if in the off chance something does go wrong, through Patagonia's ironclad guarantee, you could send them back to Patagonia for repair or replacement, no questions asked. Patagonia stands behind every product they make 100%. So whether you're into fishing, hiking, climbing, surfing, or just need a good rain jacket, backpack, or travel gear, find the sustainable and ironclad solution at Patagonia. Trust me on this one, you will not be disappointed. Again, guys, every sponsor on Hazard Ground is a product that we've used and stand by 100%. We wouldn't waste your time talking about it otherwise. So get on over to www.hazardground.com sponsors and click on the Patagonia banner for free shipping on all orders over 75 bucks. Remember, support for our sponsors goes right back into making the Hazard Ground the best show it could possibly be. Again, that's hazardground.com sponsors. Click on the Patagonia banner and get moving to your next adventure. Now on to this week's episode. This week's guest is the first of its kind. If you follow this podcast, you know we've talked to vets, we've talked to amputees, double amputees, people who have been to hell and back with PTSD, a variety of different type of people who are all willing to share their story. The story you're going to hear on this episode is so unique because it is our first Gold Star parent joining us on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, a Gold Star parent had their child killed in action during one of America's wars. Lance Corporal Travis Layfield of the Marine Corps was killed on April 6, 2004 in Ramadi, Iraq, and his mother, Diane Layfield, joins us as our first ever Gold Star parent on the Hazard Ground podcast. Diane, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. This is an honor for me as well. I appreciate you taking the time. No, listen, the honor is all on this side of the table. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't start up by saying thank you for your sacrifice. What your son did was noble and honorable. And I can't imagine the life that you're living without him. But I certainly appreciate you taking the time to share your story. I know words are of little consolation, but I at least wanted to get that out there at the very beginning that we were certainly proud to honor Travis's service and, and your sacrifice as his family. Thank you so much. All right. Well, since we can't get Travis's story from him, we'll get it from you. And we always ask why people got into the military, why they started to serve. What was your son's motivation for signing up for the Marine Corps? Well, actually, he started out at age nine. He wanted to be a Navy CB, uh, a Navy SEAL. He wanted to be in the Navy because my father, which is his grandfather, was a Navy CB in World War II. And so I think that kind of motivated Travis to uh, go off into a Navy cadet program from the age of nine till 12. Uh, and he had went through boot camp and all of that through their program. And 
they used to tell me that Travis was officer material. He loved the discipline. He was very respectful at that early age. And uh, so that's always what he wanted to do. And then when he turned into high school, of course, the recruiters were coming around at that time. And the Marines came through and Travis decided he wanted to be the best of the best and wanted to be a Marine. So that kind of surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's technically still the Navy. So, I mean, you know, uh, Marine yeah, Corps is, is the yeah. Department of the Navy. But when when he was growing up and he had these these aspirations, clearly we weren't at a time of war then. But did you ever think that they would hold or did you think that this was just a phase he was going through? I mean, what was your thoughts back then? Can you remember? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I thought it was just a phase he was going through, you know, young and everything and didn't know what he wanted to do. But then once he decided when he decided to become a Marine and they started doing their PT and and pre-entry programs, Travis was all over that in, in his junior year in high school. And he wouldn't come home from school late. He'd be down at the recruiter's office and, you know, going on field trips with them and things. And he was just then I knew he was very dedicated and con- considering very firmly that he was going to become a Marine. At what time was this? How old was he? And, you know, what year was it? Because obviously 9-11 plays a huge role in all this. Yeah, he, he graduated in 2003. So this happened in about the end of his 2002 or 2001, 2002 is when he really started getting very, very sincere about being a Marine. And 10 days after he graduated from high school, he was ready to go. He signed the papers. We signed the papers. I mean, there was no stopping him at that point. He was 18 and he was going to become a Marine, whether I agreed with it or not. So I just supported him through his whole journey. What were you, I could. What were you feeling on the inside? I mean, knowing 9-11 had happened, you saw that we had gone off to war and your son had these aspirations to be in the Marine Corps and knowing that Marine Corps, you know, the, those guys are at the front of the fight. And, and how did that make you feel as a mother? And he he wanted to be an infantry. He went for that. He could have been a step out of that. I mean, he could have went for a different program, but he wanted to be infantry. And I was scared to death. You know, <laughs> um, we had been a 9-11 coming and and we told him, his father and I, you know, told him, you know, we're, we're going, we're at war. We're going to war. There's going to be a conflict, you know, and you're going to be in it. And he said, mom, that's, that's really what I want to do. My, my, my heart's in this, you know, this is my passion. And he said that there would be no talking him out of it. So Again, we just had to sign on the papers and, and, you know, let him go and never thinking in my wildest dreams that he would not come home, you know, even though right. I would say, you know, you're, you're going to come home and, and I know you will, but never really honestly thinking that he wouldn't, you just don't phantom that when you just don't. No, I mean, just, you know, no parent ever wants to think about the possibility. So I, I certainly can understand that. that as a parent, I mean, for, for, um, you know, going through that with your kids, but you never once even had the conversation to try and talk him out of it? No, really didn't. Um, I knew he was so dedicated and so determined that there was nothing that was going to change his mind. Right. Honestly, Travis was that sincere and, and that devoted that he, there was nothing going to change his mind. In fact, him and his father actually had gotten into a couple pretty good little fistfight arguments. I can oh, say. <laughs> yeah. Literally his dad was determined he was not going to go. And, um, you know, that wasn't working. And unfortunately, Travis and him left on pretty bad terms um, where I left knowing Travis and I loved each other and we knew that I would support him no matter what. So uh, there was a few rocky points during his, you know, trying to enlist. Absolutely. 
With all this going on at Circling, was it tough to find the pride in being a parent of a Marine? Because obviously, look, it, it's not for everyone. And the parents of, of Marines and service members everywhere, they, they're proud of their children. They, 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 even though they're scared, they love the life that their children have chosen and they respect it and they understand the dedication and, and the life to service and all that. Was, was it tough for you to feel those things going through all that? Absolutely not. I was so proud of Travis that, that you know, he, his, his proudness was glowing and beaming and what he was doing and that he was going to be able to, you know, portray for his country and stuff. And um, it, it made me proud. And when I went to his graduation at the, you know, MCRD in Camp Pendleton area in San Diego, um, I couldn't have been prouder of him. You know, I, I just knew this was the path my son wanted to go. And I was very proud of him. Was his dad there at graduation as well? He did go. He did go. Uh, he was okay with it. And they had tried to mend ways, but there was not that warm fuzzy, right. um, unfortunately. But his dad and his younger brother and I also went down. So, Okay, so he graduates from Marine Corps training. Uh, what mm-hmm. time of year is this, month and year? And, and I'm just curious how quickly, uh, what's his next unit and where does he go and how quickly does he end up overseas? Yeah, he, he left in September of 2003, and okay. then uh, October um, is when he was done with his boot camp. The end of October, he came home for a few weeks before Christmas that year, and then um, they were going to be leaving in February, so we went down the end of January to say goodbye to him before right. he deployed. It, it was just within a couple of months, and then he deployed, and um, I wanted to go back down the day that they were actually leaving from Camp Pendleton, but he wouldn't let me. He said, Mom, it's going to be too tough on all of us, and he didn't want me to go. He knows what a crier I am (laughs) and how emotional I get. So he just said it would be better if I stayed home. So we went down the end of January and got to say goodbye to him and, you know, see you later type thing. But um, then they left in February, and then he was killed the beginning of April. So it was a very short um, Marine Corps history for him. When he graduated and came back home, um, did you notice a difference in him just as an individual after all the training he had received? Absolutely. He was, he was just more, uh, stood up straight and was almost like a, a man, you know, in just those few weeks, the respect was just unbelievable. And, um, the pride that he had, he really had pride already that just, like I said, beamed. he just was so excited about what he was doing and he knew what he was headed for. He was, knew he was going to be getting deployed and he was ready for it. He said, mom, that's what I'm training for. And, um, so when the last time when we did go down to see him, him and I, uh, we shared a, a room and then my ex-husband and my younger son shared a room in a hotel because we only had a couple of days with him. That was in the end of January. And so we were in the beds room and he was trying to tell me, mom, I need to talk to you. Cause he said, if anything happens to me, I'm going to take care of you, you know? And I said, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to talk about it. And he goes, no, mom, you're going to be my beneficiary. I said, I don't want to talk about it. So there was things, unfortunately, I wasn't strong enough to hear him tell me because um, maybe things, you know, um, could have been a little different on my end uh, of different things that I had made uh, happen after he had passed. You know, I, I didn't know some things that maybe he wanted done um, I know this is sad, but cremation or being buried. So there were things like that, but I, I just didn't want to hear it. Cause I said, no, you're coming home. I don't want to talk about that. So I have that regret. That's probably the biggest regret I have is not letting him really talk to me about that. But I just wasn't ready to hear that at that time. 
Well, I mean, what parent is? I mean, it's, it's oh. you know, look, I, I tried to have the same conversation with my mother, um, mm-hmm. and, and it was very short, and I could tell from the beginning she wasn't picking up what I was putting down, and mm-hmm. I ended it. You know, I, I felt like if I left detailed enough instructions and everything else that, you know, that mm-hmm. stuff would take care of itself, and uh, I think for all of us, Diane, okay. you know, uh, just to get a little bit of other perspective and from talking to other people... Mm-hmm. That's our biggest fear. It's not. It's not even our own lives, so to speak. It's. It's what happens to the people we leave behind, right? I mean, because absolutely that you know is what we can't affect. Because everybody mm-hmm. in the military feels like if we put our hands on it, we'll fix it, right? Because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. We we're trained to solve problems. We take care of missions and everything else. And so, uh, I certainly can can sympathize with what he was feeling. Um, but uh, on the converse, you know, I, from your perspective as a mother. I know when I tried to have that conversation, it was just, it was shut down. I don't think any yeah. parent ever wants to put those thoughts in their, in their mind about their child. Yeah, it's something you don't want to talk about. And you know you're not going to bury your child. You know, you're not supposed to bury your child. They're supposed to bury you. And so, yeah, I just, I, I just, I couldn't hear that, you know. And I, I knew he was going to come home, but unfortunately he didn't. So. Okay, so he goes off, you said, in March, right? He he hits his duty station, or in February, rather, he hits his duty it, it station? It was in February, okay. and then they went into Kuwait. They had to do some training and stuff in Kuwait. Now, um, were you able to keep in touch with him through this process, or was he one of those units where he didn't get a lot of time to call back? I mean, because, look, 2004, uh, we didn't have great, like, communication systems, you know, from correct. the Middle East back, but we had decent ones, comparatively speaking, correct. to today. Was he able to keep in contact with you and let you know where he was and what was going on? I got to talk to him twice um, when he was in Ramadi, um, only because he said the lines were so long, as you say. Yeah. Communication was horrible. He couldn't email. I didn't I didn't have any of that from him. And a couple letters. And then we had wrote letters and we had sent care packages. But unfortunately, they all came back with his stuff because he never got them from our family. Oh, but, um, God. Yeah, it was pretty bad, but. Um, it, it was just tough, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you actually know the date that he got on a plane to go to go to the Middle East, or you had no idea? You didn't hear from him until he actually was in the on the ground. I believe it was February thirteenth. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, I I didn't really even hear from him when he got on the ground. It was weeks later that he finally was able to contact us. And let us know um, that he was there and everything. And then I talked to him on March 17th was the last time I got to talk to him. He actually called me at work and I was supposed to go back from my break. And my boss said, no, just talk to him, you know, thank God, because that was the last time I got to talk to Travis. And he actually had called his brother and his sister and my ex-husband and talked to all of us that day. So it was just kind of weird that he actually was able to talk to all of us that day. Yeah. Um, and that was the last time any of us heard from Travis. Did you inquire about what he what, where he was and what he was doing? I mean, even if he couldn't tell you, did you ask the question? Yeah, yeah, I knew I w- he was in Ramadi, um, and and he had told me, you know, just to go on, uh, try to find an Iraqi map and look it up and stuff that he was in Ramadi, and then that was about all that he could really tell me. It wasn't that he was on a private mission, but you know, him being there so so new, so shortly. I mean, I don't even think he really had the concept yet of where he really was type thing. You know what I mean? Right, right. It was pretty new. Okay, so uh, March 17th, the last time you talked to him, it's mm-hmm. three weeks go by. Yes. And, uh, you know, this is... Uh, it's, uh, Diane, I'm sorry, it's just incredibly hard for me to even get the question out, so I, I, I forgive me, but... Please. Take me through the day where 
uh, April, well, he was killed on April 6th, so I assume April 6th you don't get the phone call because usually it takes a couple of days or a day or two for the Army to go through their processing, or I'm sorry, the Marine Corps to go through their processing and, and all that um, before they notify the family. When did you hear and what was that day? Actually, um, my youngest grandson was going to be playing um, baseball, and he had asked me the day before to come to his game, and I said, no, I, I just need to get home after work. Well, that day at work, we were... I had collected things from my work for care packages to send to Travis's unit. And a couple ladies and I were actually packing those up in our office to send the next day to, to Travis's unit. And so on the way home, I thought, no, I'm going to go ahead and go to my grandson's game. Right. And so I get to the game and I could just feel the tension as I got out of the car because my daughter was already there and she's going, mom, don't get on the TV. When you get home, don't get on the phone. She says, you know, 11 Marines have been killed today in, in, in Iraq. And I said, I, I knew then, I, I just knew, literally, I couldn't sit still on the bench. I was literally bouncing and I just was going crazy. You know, I just said, oh my God, I know it's Travis. She goes, no, we don't know yet, mom. So anyway, so she asked me to go to dinner with their family after the game. And I said, no, I need to get home and get by the phone. I just really had some weird feelings. I think only a mother could have. And so I get home and I live at the end of a carport. And as I pull into the carport area, I see my manager standing by the office and she's never out there in the evening. It's like about 7.30 at night and she's never out there. So I was kind of wondering and she was talking to somebody. So I went to car, park my car in the carport. And as I got out, I see three Marines coming around the end of the carport. And I just started screaming, literally. I just fell to my knees and started screaming and two of my neighbors had come out at that time they were going to go somewhere and they kind of grabbed me and held on to me and I started screaming not my Travis because I know a phone call you know they're wounded but when they come to face you you know it's the worst of the worst so that was a tough day for me yeah. I'll never forget it it's imprinted in my mind forever Diane I'm so sorry like I'm you know I don't mean to get emotional I just no I, I can okay. I, I I don't know what to say I just it, it, can you remember anything else? I mean, what they, what did they tell you? What did they say to you? Were you able to even gather yourself to, to understand anything at that point? You know, I, I was screaming so much that they, they, the first thing they said, let's get her upstairs. I do remember that. And of course, right behind the Marines was my, my uh, landlord. She was following them down because I guess later I found out she had kept them in her house waiting for me because they couldn't, put anything on the news till they notified all the families and I was Travis's next of kin beneficiary so until I was notified they couldn't put it on the news so and of course all the other families but they had all been notified and so when I saw her coming too they all took me upstairs and then that's when the, he set me down and she goes do you want me to call your daughter and I said yes please and of course I could hear my daughter on the other end saying is he dead or is he wounded and she said you know that he had been killed so Right away, my youngest son and my daughter, they just came from Santa Clara. I was in Fremont, which is probably about a 40-minute run for both of them. Oh. And they were there in minutes. And um, and it was just, then it was all over the news. It was just crazy. And for quite a couple months, Travis was pretty much on the news all the time. The Toby Keith song, uh, American Soldier, had come out, and they were yeah. always dedicating it to Travis. And he was one of the first, especially in the Bay Area, so that was pretty huge. I mean, there had only been two other ones a little further down south that were killed in this area. So Travis was pretty much one of the main ones. And 
in this area. So it was all pretty new since the Vietnam War, you know. Right. We hadn't had all of this for, for many years. And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose type thing. So yeah. when when you started to see the news and everything else, was that helpful? Did it hurt more? Was it something you couldn't watch? Uh, I, I couldn't watch it much. Yeah, I just tried to stay away from the news. I was so involved in trying to get his funeral services ready. And of course the Marines were out, you know, those few days and I had a CEO officer that, you know, would come out and make sure we were doing fine. But my apartment was so full of people and um, people were coming from out of state. So my landlord had an empty uh, apartment. So she put a, a lot of my people that were coming out of state into the apartment. So that was really amazing for her to do that for us. But it was just so chaotic, I guess I could say. And um, I remember my daughter calling my doctor right away and saying, you know, we had lost my, her brother, my son, and that I needed to get on some kind of medicine to, you know, make sure I'm okay. So um, I remember my doctor prescribing just a mild uh, prescription sedative to kind of keep the edge off of me. So um, I remember things, but I was still in a numb state, I guess you could say. I, I just couldn't accept it. <laughs> No, it I mean, hard at first. Diane, I, I don't think you accept it today. I mean, it, you, it is Correct. what it is, but it, it's never, you know, anything that you, as a parent, you're willing to accept. Were you mm. curious as to the events and how it happened or you didn't know it didn't matter to you? How were you feeling um, about that, that scenario? You know, like I say, it was so chaotic. Um, and they, I think, probably told me. Uh, but I didn't have all the details at that time. And I don't think that they really had all the details um, at, at the beginning. And so it took them about eight days to get Travis home. And then they told me they were even going to take longer. And I had already had, like I say, family here, his funeral service set up and ready to go. So the Marines kind of said, you know, you need to demand that he be home. And so I did, and they did have him home on, on the 13th. So, uh, and then we buried him on April 16th. So when, it was, it was chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me stay here for once, one more second. Did you eventually find out the events and what happened or no? I did. Yes. I know all the details. And in fact, um, I found out one last really detail that was pretty important to me. And that was at their 10 year reunion that we had a few years ago, um, and that was the first time all of his unit and stuff had been together. Because uh, over that seven-month deployment, we lost 48 Marines out yeah. of their battalion. So it was pretty heavy hit. But uh, like, say, 11 on their day, including Travis. But um, after 10 years at this reunion, we had a barbecue the day before the actual reunion and the big ceremony and stuff. And some of the guys finally were telling me and they were finally opening up with each other and about the whole incident so things were coming out that some of them had not wanted to talk about in 10 years but they were actually drawing in the sand for me and my family to show us exactly what had happened in the ambush that day and I guess when Travis was killed uh, some of the insurgents had drug him into a garbage pile and so thank God that somebody saw, because he was a radio operator and somebody saw an antenna and they went over to investigate after everything had, you know, calmed down and they were gathering all their wounded Marines and, and killed Marines. Um, and they saw this radio, you know, antenna and they dug through the garbage and it was Travis. So I'm honestly grateful for that. I, I know it's weird to say so many blessings, but 
had they not found him, he would still be, you know, unaccountable. And I would never know what had happened to him or if he was a prisoner, at least I know now he's home. Um, and we could bury him with respect and the honor that he deserved and not in some garbage trash that's in Iraq somewhere, you know? So right. Well, the torture you must would have felt over that time with the, sl- the smallest sliver of hope that he would still be alive would, would, have, would have eaten you alive. I mean, it would have eaten anybody alive. I mean, that's just... That's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. so, yes. I mean, you know, I, I get chills even thinking about it. And, and yeah. you know, when you talk I didn't know about, that for 10 years. Yeah. Okay, was, imagine... That was a total shock to even know that he may never have been found, you know, or like say we we may have thought he was still alive today, unfortunately, you know, but and a lot of them, you know, were killed by the IED that hit the the, the units um, trucks, you know, and stuff. But Travis actually was running across the street to get to cover with some of the other Marines. And that's when he was shot and killed. But um, it's just it's just horrendous knowing that. His staff sergeant, who still to this day lives in guilt because Travis took six bullets where he was right shoulder to shoulder with him, he had told me, and never, never got hit. But I said, you know, it's, you know, it's in God's hands and we have to just accept whatever God prepares for us, I guess. So I thank God I have faith and I'm trying to keep that strong still to this day. So uh, it takes a week to get the body home. What yes. was that experience like? Because it's almost like ripping the Band-Aid off again, no? Absolutely. Yeah, that was tough. And then especially when they told me they were going to postpone it, I was just devastated because I wanted him home. And um, so, yeah, it just kept kind of opening the wound and waiting for him and waiting for him, like you said, it was even torture. Um, and I, I didn't know how he was going to come home. I didn't know if I was going to be able to see him. Because again, I said like some of them were really, you know, blown up and unfortunately not to be viewable. But I was blessed that Travis was intact enough where we could have a viewing and I could actually say goodbye to him um, and see him and know that, you know, it's him and it's it really happened, you know. Because you're still in denial, I think, up until that till that very last second. I think you're just still in denial. And I didn't even get his. Uh, belongings back for probably about two months after he was killed. So that took quite a while to get from Iraq to get all his stuff. When you had the viewing and everything kind of, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously did you throw yourself on the casket. Did you hug? I don't, I don't know what you do. Like, how do you, what's that moment? You know, he came home and uh, of course he had an escort Marine that rode with him and we escorted him. He came into San Francisco airport late at night because they knew there would be, you know, big escort and police cops and stuff. So they tried to make him come home late at night so it wouldn't interfere with traffic in the Bay Area, which is crazy. So um, we all had went up. They got us limos and stuff and took us up. And so when we were bringing Travis back and we took him to the funeral home, I had my son, my two sons, and then my daughter and other family members were with us. And um, so they were going to see him that night if, if he was viewable. And I the young man who escorted him said, yes, uh, let us check him. So they took him into the back room of the funeral home and checked Travis. And he came out and said, he's viewable. He rode well. Um, so I had already psyched myself up that I didn't want to see him till that next morning. That's when I knew I was going to be able to see him. So I couldn't go in the, right away the first night when he came home, when we brought him to the funeral home, my kids and everybody went in, but I couldn't. So then the next day, um, you know, they were telling me he's, he looks like Travis mom, you know, and everything. So, um, 
I was able to go in and see him. And of course, I just, I didn't throw myself on the casket. I touched him. I touched his face, which of course was very cold, but I had to touch him. And I, I leaned over and kissed him. Uh, and then my daughter said, mom, maybe we should cut a piece of his hair off. So we actually asked the funeral director for scissors and we cut a little lock of his hair off. But um, I have that still today, of course, in a safe place. But you know, then it was final. It was really, you know, it was just set then that he was really gone, but he looked like my Travis. They did a great job on transferring him and, you know, making him look like himself. So, um, like, again, I count those blessings because I was able to kiss him and say goodbye. So some parents didn't get that. No, Diane, I don't know how you're holding it together telling this because I am like (laughs) losing it here. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's easy. It's, yeah. I, I, God, I, I can't even. It, it's emotions, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that you really can't put in. You really can't put into words because it's, it's so gut wrenching, and yet there's such beauty about some of it. You know, his funeral service was so beautiful, and and my daughter knows that I love photography and pictures, so she actually hired a professional photographer to take pictures because she knew I wouldn't be able to take pictures. And, you know, those are memories that, even though it's sad that he's in his casket and. But the funeral service and all the people, those are memories, you know, that are part of Travis's life, the end of his life, you know, and there's some beautiful photos and and very touching things. So I'm thankful that I do have those. And um, I'm thankful for so many, so many blessings that through this journey um, I've had, and it's been incredible. The people I've met, I tell Travis every day, he brings somebody into my life or something that it's just incredible. The people I've met, the people I've been to see and, and it's, it's been incredible, but it's all because of Travis, you know, it's, he's still shining. He's still shining through. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so what's the aftermath, Diane? I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the days and weeks after must've been a, a blur, both emotionally, physically, and you're kind of just navigating through each day, figuring out how to get out of bed. But kind of when you look back <laughs> on it, you know, what are those weeks and months after what stands out about them? You know, um, I just stayed really busy with our military. I was uh, in a in an operation mom group and Blue Star Moms, of course, at that time. And I just kept going to meetings. I kept trying to stay involved and stay busy. I, I kind of took off of work for quite a while because um, I just I couldn't concentrate on work. I knew I needed to do something different to keep my mind occupied and being a part of what Travis loved and believed in the military. Uh, is what I did. And unfortunately, back then, we were kind of losing quite a few very rapidly. And I was going to a lot of funerals. I don't know how I ever held up. People said, we don't know how you do it. But I probably went to maybe 20, 22 funerals in our Bay Area. And just to pay respect. um, And and it was Army and, and all the branches, of course. And I wanted to be there for other Gold Star families because I, like I say, was one of the first, and uh, it was so raw for everybody that I just, I don't know, I don't, I told God when, when he took Travis, I said, you're putting me on a mission, I have no idea, you know, I said, just guide me, and and that's where I went, because I'm not a speaker, I'm not a, you know, in front of public much, um, and that's what I became, I became a speaker, kind of an advocate for Gold Star families, and uh, ended up doing golf tournaments to raise money, for the California license plates um, so that, you know, our California gold star families could have license plates that recognized uh, 
our sacrifice. And um, I just stayed busy that way. I really stayed involved and kept myself trying to be busy. But, you know, there's even today I see movies or listen to a song and it'll come on about, you know, things that Travis loved or something. And uh, it's it's still an open wound and it always will be. Absolutely. Sure. Was any of it cathartic? Was there any therapy for you in, in doing that? You know, I didn't go to therapy for about the first year. I thought, I don't need it. I'm doing fine. I can get through this. And then I thought, it's free. You know, maybe I could talk to somebody because my family, you know, they were all starting to kind of move on. And, you know, mom, it's time to kind of go forward. And and I wasn't ready yet. It was my son and I wasn't ready yet. So I finally went to counseling. And it was probably the best six months I did for myself. Um, I loved it. It was so helpful. I mean, there was things that even brought up prior to that about things that I didn't even realize were buried in my own body, you know, type things. So uh, the therapy was wonderful. Um, the counseling was great. So it was probably the best thing I did. And after six months, I told her, I said, you know, I'm good. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way now and you might need this lot for somebody else. So, um, but it was really good. I'm glad I took that step. It was very important piece of my life to do after losing Travis. So uh, years, as years go by, I mean, it's, it's not getting easier, but how do you learn to deal? Because normal isn't normal anymore, right? You, you have a new definition right. of normal. There was normal when your son was alive and then there's life after that. And that's normal, but it's not. Right. There is no normal. It's not, it's a new normal. Absolutely. But let me just add this at two years, two and a half years after we lost Travis, uh, we found out that he had a son that Travis never knew he had. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so Travis has a little boy who is now going to be 16, actually, because Travis will be gone 14 years. And Dylan is uh, going to be 16 in June. So um, and can I tell you a little story about that real quick? Please. Um, my daughter is 12 years older. I have two children from my first marriage. And then 12 years later, I had Travis and Tyler. And so Travis and Tiff were really close. Um, she was like a second little mom to him. But anyway, after he had passed away, um, he had been with this lady who was like quite older than him. So I made her emancipate because um, she wanted to take Travis out of the house and be his mommy type thing. So um, I had her emancipate him and they moved um, about two hours away from us when he was like 16 and a half. So long story short, she had kicked him out a year later and, um, but she had gotten pregnant, but she led another man to believe that it was his child, their roommate. So um, Travis never really knew, but he kept coming to my daughter in his dreams after he was killed, that he was still alive. He used to call her Nini and he would say, you know, I'm still alive. And she said he would come out of his casket and she was on the battlefield in some of her dreams. She said with Travis holding him as he died. So he really came to her really heavy. Cause I guess he knew I probably wouldn't have done anything cause I'm not as outgoing as my daughter is. Right. But uh, so she went down to confront this lady and had left them uh, some mail in the mailbox saying, you know, that she had heard that Katana's the mother had had a child and, so she finally contacted my daughter three weeks later and my daughter and my youngest son went down to meet Dylan. And so when my daughter came back, I didn't know any of this was going on. And then my daughter came back and said, I need to talk to you. And then told me what she had done and said that it looks like Dylan. And, you know, we're pretty sure it's Dylan's. And I said, I don't want to meet this child until 
I'm 100% no, it's my grandson. So about a month later, she finally decided to do a DNA test. And uh, of course, they have to only tech mine and my ex-husband's because Travis, we couldn't do. So right. Dylan and mine were almost 100% match. We were 99.9 something match. So, um, and I he looked just like Christmas. Travis, you said? Yep, she said he did. Okay. So that Christmas, it was Christmas, 10 days before Christmas, we, we uh, got the news. And so she brought him up to meet us. And out of all four of my kids, um, only Travis would pull, when I'd lift him up, he'd take my hair and twist it. And when I'd hold him, and the minute I picked up Dylan, he grabbed my hair and he twisted it. Oh. And I knew then he was my grandson just from that, because, you know, who else would know that, right? Right. And um, he does look like Travis, and he is more and more like his daddy every day. And uh, they've recently moved up to Washington State, so I don't get to see him now um, very often. But we text, and he sends me pictures, and he now wants to become a Marine. Oh, my God. <laughs> and his mom <laughs> is going crazy. She's telling me, you got to talk him out of it. And I said, there's no talking him out of it. When he's 18, you know, he's and he's proud of his dad and what he stood for. And I said, you know, maybe he'll change his mind. But I said, if not, you just have to support him if that's what he really wants to do. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you but talk, it's just a blessing. Yeah, I was going to say you talk about blessings. I mean, you know, uh, yes. it, it's one thing to keep Travis alive through memories and pictures and events and things of that nature. But to have a grandson from him. Um, his legacy lives on. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's, you know. Uh, Incredible. It, CNN actually came out and did a huge story on us. Oh, really? A huge story. Yes. A huge story on us finding Dylan. And uh, like I say, back then, you know, it was kind of new. We were one of the new ones. So things were just kind of all over the place. But um, so they did. Yeah. Really nice story on us finding Dylan. and Very, very nice. So, Diane, a question uh, apart from Travis, how mm -hmm. are the rest of your kids doing? How are they holding up? Because, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a mom, obviously, but you love all your kids equally. And absolutely. And, and there's, you know, now that there's one less like. How do you do? You focus more attention on them now, or that they're all grown? Can they handle this? How are the other kids doing? Well, you know, at first I didn't. Um, like I said, I was going to meetings and doing all these things and speaking, and everything was about Travis. Travis, and I have pictures of Travis. People have given me things, so I put them on my walls. You know, I had like a museum where I used to live with just Travis, and I didn't realize I was neglecting my kids to that point. But I would go to things, and people didn't even know I had three other children. They only thought I had Travis, and I didn't realize that till we had went to a Christmas dinner at a Blue Star Mall meeting, and my daughter went with me, and I was introducing her to people, you know, my daughter, and people were going, oh, my God, we didn't even know you had other kids, so it was like, oh, my God, a light just went on, you know, mm -hmm. because I had neglected talking about my three other children, and I felt so bad, so I made a public announcement at one of the uh, speaking engagements that I was at later on. And um, there were quite a few thousands of people there. And I had actually had my kids come up on stage and introduce them and said, oh my God, you know, I have other children. And <laughs> it just was strange that everything was about Travis. But, you know, I, I, I just, like I say, it was a new normal. And Travis was in the limelight and the Marines and it just changed my whole life. And um, over the past two years, I have finally realized that my, my children are alive and we do a lot of things as much as we can together. I actually live with my daughter now and her family. Um, so, 
my youngest son's a Fremont police officer who still keeps me on the edge of my chair every day <laughs> because, you know, there's such a hatred for police officers these days and it's <laughs> dangerous, but, yeah. um, you know, but I love my children and they know that. And, you know, Travis is still all around us and I do a lot of things still, but not near that I used to do. So um, my family is very important to me. Absolutely. But Travis will always be etched in our minds and our hearts forever, for sure. It's January 10th as the recording of this podcast. Uh, that means we're three months away from, you know, the anniversary and that fateful date. Um, take me through what you do on April 6th and what that's like reliving every year. Uh, usually we go to the cemetery. Um, people always are, you know, emailing me or calling me at a time. Are you going to be meeting at Travis's? Are you doing anything for Travis? We also do Christmas with Travis. Um, mm-hmm. And I have the same thing. Uh, my daughter keeps saying, mom, after 10 years, you know, you should, I said, Tiff, how do you stop? I mean, his birthday yeah. is as important to me and his anniversary of his, you know, death is as important to me. I said, I have to keep, I have to, he's my yes. son, you know, and, and nobody can tell you or walk in your shoes until they have to walk in your shoes, you know, and praying nobody ever has to, but, no. um, so, you know, we will, his birthday is May 26th. Uh, I say he was born in red, white, and blue because he was born Memorial Day weekend. And mm-hmm. I said he died in red, white, and blue. And no. so, you know, I, I go to the cemetery and usually if there's people there, we go out to dinner afterwards. Um, till my last dying breath, I will always honor Travis on any day that I can. And especially Christmas and his birthday and his anniversary date. Um, absolutely. I I'm there. <laughs> I mean, have your other kids kind of walked away from some of that? And does that bother you? They've moved on. Uh, my daughter, especially because, you know, she went to things with me for about the first year. Like if we'd go to events or things, she would she would always be there to kind of take care of me type thing, even though she had just gotten married and had her own life, you know, but she was still by my side. And then after that, she started moving on. And And both of my younger kids, my oldest son lives in Arkansas, so he really he's not in the vibe of it all type thing even though he you know knows Travis loved him but uh it's my two younger kids and and they both say mom just because we don't talk about him or we don't cry about him every day doesn't mean we don't love him and miss him just as much as you so it's different from a mom and it's different from a sibling so there's no comparison I my daughter has two boys I hope and pray nothing ever happens to them but I hope she never ever has to walk in my shoes but it's a hard road to go and, and you don't know how you're going to handle it until it happens. Unfortunately, you're coming up on a point where, you know, 14 years, Travis was 19 when he died. Um, and you know, that's gotta be an unnerving thought that you're going to hit a point where you've spent more of your life without Travis than you have with is, does that scare you? Not really, um, because I, I've been saying that lately. I said, my God, he's almost been gone as long as he was alive. And it's hard to comprehend that because it still seems like yesterday, you know, um, and here it's going to be 14 years and then it will be 19 years. And exactly, you know, I I don't think anything would change for me, um, but who's, who's to say, you know, um, it's just one day at a time, I guess, but I don't foresee me changing anything right now. Right. Um, I love him and I miss him like anything. <laughs> it, it, I mean, what's a bad day like for you? Like there's gotta be some days you're just 
not wanting out of bed. What's exactly. a bad What's a bad day like? I was just going to say, just staying in bed, not eating, just kind of really pulling the covers up over your head and um, just honestly taking a couple sleeping pills here and then a couple more sleeping pills. Not that I'm addicted to them, but right. um, just to just to let that day pass. Um, but I don't have too many of those anymore. You know, it was like that in the beginning, but, um, now I just talk to him all the time. I go out every night and I pray to the stars and pray to him and tell him I love him, blow him kisses, you know? So I still do that every night. I've done that for almost 14 years, every night of my life. So just letting him know that he's still here. He's with me all the time. You know, being a gold star mom, it, it's not like anybody can see your wounds or your scars or know anything about what happened. Correct. So how, I mean, when it comes up, do you kind of just not bring it up or do you just not answer it if it's somebody new who asked a question or anything or are you forthcoming telling everybody about what's going on? I answer and I love talking about Travis and not that I love talking about the battle, but if people ask me, what happened, how I, you know, he was killed. I mean, I'm just honored if people will ask me his name, you know, because people don't know what to say. And people in the beginning actually act like you have a plague, you yeah, know, like you're a leper, um, like don't touch you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to happen to me or my kids, you know, and, and I went through that quite a bit in the beginning. But now, uh, you know, I, I just tell people, you know, give me a hug. It's worth a thousand, you know, a thousand words because people don't know what to say. And um, I love talking about Travis. If anybody just asks me his name, I I give them a hug and tell them, thank you for even asking his name because he was somebody and he was my son. And I'm I'm honored to talk about him. And if anybody asks me, you know, there may be tears here and there, but um, I'm just honored that they asked me about my hero. And I'm very proud of him. Well, I'm honored that you were willing to tell us so much about him and for this podcast. I mean, you know, this just, uh, uh, I, I love hearing about him. I'd love to have met him and, and spent some time with him. And, you know, hey, as, as an Army officer, I would have loved for him to serve in my unit and been with him because everything you say about him, he was a model Marine and uh, he loved it. And, and that's kind of, you know, something that's really important to anybody who puts on a uniform. You have to love it. You, you, you can't do it, uh, you know, kind of half ass. It has to be a no. passion. Absolutely. And can I tell you this quick story sure, too? Do you have please. time? Yeah, absolutely. You know General Mattis. Yes. You know General Mattis, correct? Well, mm -hmm. him and I have become very good friends. Oh, really? And um, yes. That's a good person uh, to know, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I've told him for years that he needs to run for president, and he's getting closer. He's getting closer. Good. He's in the White House now, so I'm honored. But uh, when I first met him, he was speaking at an engagement um, where they were putting a plaque uh, up on Soledad in LA area of our guys's unit. And so general Mattis was talking and I'm in the crowd and he's uh, addressing this Marine that his mother had said loved to go to dances because he wouldn't let any of the girls be wallflowers. He had this kind of a personality that just was taking care of everybody. And afterwards I walked up to general Mattis and I said, Oh my God, that's my son you're talking about. <laughs> So he still tells that story every now oh and then in groups. It's amazing. Yeah. And and since that day, which is, gosh, almost 10, 11, 12 years ago, I guess now, we have become really good friends and um, just an incredible man. And, uh, of course, now that he's in the White House, you know, we can't connect as often. Uh, I wait for him to call or something. But he always calls and checks up on me every so often. And 
you know, he's always telling me that, you know, Travis is, you know, still in his heart and he'll never forget and stuff. Oh so it's that's just, priceless. Like that's such a beautiful it, thing. It is priceless. It's just, I have emails from him that I've saved uh, every one of them and pictures and, you know, he's an incredible man and uh, his stature is just amazing. So, um, but I had to share that because he's such an icon in the military world. And of course now in the world, because he's in the white house, but, um, secretary of defense is amazing, but, uh, he's an incredible man. So yeah, he tells the story about my son. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, tell me about the phone call you got on January 3rd, 2009. Oh, wow. Um, I actually got a phone call. Um, I had just started dating a gentleman and we were getting ready to go out to Monterey and I get this phone call and it's a gentleman saying that he is from the White House. He is uh, on the staff of President Bush. Um, and I said, oh yeah, right. Who's, who's the jokester here, you know? <laughs> and he said, no, ma'am. And then he told me, he said, did you write a letter to uh, President Bush a few years ago uh, telling him you were going to be in Washington, D.C. and you wanted to meet him. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, let me read you the letter. He had the letter. He read it to me. I said, oh, my God. So he was inviting me a special invitation to the White House to meet President Bush before he left office. So there was no political gain for President Bush to invite any of the Gold Star families at that point. But he um, invited, there was probably about, oh, maybe 90 to 100 Gold Star families at that time that he invited. Um, we had to pay our own way, but we were invited for, you know, food and drinks and everything. So we spent the whole day at the White House because they took different families in to his blue room for him to meet at a time. And some had children, so we kept saying, we'll go later let the ones with the little kids that were getting cranky go first. And, um, but we had our turn and my daughter and my uh, oldest grandson at that time, uh, the three of us went. And then this gentleman I was dating was a Sergeant major uh, retired from the Marine Corps. And so uh, I asked him if he would escort me because I didn't want to go alone. So he actually drove me all the way from California to Washington, DC oh to, to go meet president Bush. And, it was the most incredible thing. Um, I know there's political things and I won't get into those, but I, he was my commander in chief for my son. And, um, you know, he did with all the nine 11 stuff, what he thought was right. And when he first addressed all of us, he had us all in a group when we first got there and addressed all the families and said, he took all the responsibility, you know, and he said he thought he did what was right at the time. And, you know, but he didn't have to do all that. I mean, he didn't have to take that all firing on and, um, but he did. And it was an amazing, amazing honor to meet him. So yeah, that was pretty exciting <laughs> that he actually remembered my letter and that I actually wrote him, you know, you just think all that stuff goes in the trash bin, right? right? Sure, yeah. You know, nobody's going to read that. He didn't get it, you know, he didn't hear it or anything, but he really did. And so that, that gave him really some, some stature with me as well, that he, he really did care. It's, it's amazing, Diane, and all your pain and suffering and all your loss, these little things keep coming up that are reminders of Travis, or it's like, he's just like this angel out there constantly, mm -hmm. you know, tapping you on the shoulder saying, Hey, I'm still here. You know, like yeah. all these little, even everything from, you know, the finding in the body and, 
you know, you being able to see him and, um, you know, just the letter and then all the stories that you've told. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, do you, are you in awe sometimes of the fact that these things keep happening? Oh, absolutely. And people told me I should write a book because I'm only touching on the iceberg, honestly, of things because it, it, it is amazing, this, this journey I have been on. And uh, yeah, people tell me I should write a book because it's, it's been incredible. It's just something I could never have imagined in a million years in, in my life. Um, even after losing Travis, I never thought any of this would be happening. But like I say, the people I've met, the things I've done have just just been amazing. I just, yeah, it's been crazy. <laughs> Let me present you with a hypothetical situation. I'm a, I'm, I'm a father and we meet, you know, on the street for the first time and we strike up a conversation. I tell you, my son is thinking about joining the military. What would your response to me be? I would, you know, do just what I've told Katana. I would say, just love them and support them and treasure every minute you have with them. I always would say Travis could have been killed in a car wreck. He could have been a high school kid that got killed in a drunk driving accident or something, you know, so none of us know from day to day, but um, just know if, if your son wants to go into the military, you're going to be so proud and it's an honorable way to live his life and, you know, praying nothing would ever happen to them. But I would say, encourage them. It's, they get a lot of, uh, respect, a lot of growing up. I mean, there's so many things that they are taught that can help them through life. So I would say absolutely support them and give them all the love that you can. Absolutely. Diane, before we wrap this up, I guess I just kind of want to give you a minute, a minute uh, to talk to Travis and, and, you know, and tell us more about him or just give us something that, that can leave us a little more of Travis, uh, whatever you feel comfortable saying. Travis, like I said, just loved um, the wallflowers. He was had such a gift. I mean, there was never a stranger he met. Travis was very outgoing. Uh, he loved sports. He had an arm on him that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could tell you this one story about it, me, him because it just, I think, tells everything about Travis. We, When he was home after he had got through boot camp um, and came home, we went to see Brooks and Dunn, which is both of our favorite country group. And we went to the concert and my younger son was there as well, but they played Neon Moon, which is my very favorite song by Brooks and Dunn. And so Travis grabbed my hand and walked me to the top of the hill at the concert and started dancing with me. And I told him, Travis, go dance with one of these beautiful girls, you know? (laughs) And he said, no, mom, I want to dance with you because I don't know if it'll be our last dance. So that's the kind of person that Travis was. He just was caring and loving and just cared about everybody and he had that gift and the beautifulest blue eyes you'd ever want to see <laughs> make your heart melt yeah well uh it, it's it's melted 100 percent 100 times over uh, i mean okay. you know uh, in the same respect i am my heart is broken for you um well thank you so you know much. I, I i there's i don't even want to try to say anything that's going to make you feel any better because it's it's futile and <laughs> Obviously, you know, nothing will ever replace him in your life, but I, I just want to express gratitude again for your sacrifice to our country, for Travis's service and his sacrifice. And I certainly thank you for opening your heart um, and all your words of wisdom to our listeners on this podcast. And uh, I would encourage you just as somebody who still has a uniform on to keep speaking and keep talking to 
both gold star families and families of, of, of military parents. I think your story is worth hearing. I think every parent needs to hear it. I think people need in general need to hear it. it it'll soften up what's been become a pretty hard world these days. Uh, and yeah. it'll remind us all um, the, the great loss that you have and, and sometimes to appreciate things a lot more. And I know I'm leaving, you know, this podcast, uh, just thinking of my family and my children and and holding them a little bit closer because a lot of this stuff can easily be taken away from us at any moment. And absolutely, and tell them you love them as much as you can. It's never a word that can ever be outspoken. You just let them know how much you love them every second of every day. Well, I, and in the words of your own, if if I could physically give you a hug, I would. But I promise you, I'm sending well, you, you one, um, and I'm well, wrapping my arms you. around you and Travis and and praying for you both. And and thank, uh, you. thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. And thank you for your service. And thank you for honoring my son today on your show. And maybe one day our paths will meet, Mark. Uh, Diane, I would love it. I, I would buy you dinner. I'd buy you lunch. I'd buy you a drink, whatever you need. Uh, just, just to spend some time, more time with you and hear about Travis would, would certainly make my day. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.